9. That K with addition of mass A is to cover crossing lines. In H I have introduced a straight line into our initial scribble, and this somewhat increases the difficulties of relating them. But by drawing 7 8 and 9 10 radiating from 1 2, we have introduced this straight line to 5 6. For although 5 6 and 9 10 do not radiate from the same point, they are obviously in sympathy. It is only a short part of the line at the end marked 5 that is out of sympathy, and had 5 6 taken the course of the dotted line, it would have radiated from the same point as 9 10. We still have line 3 4 to account for, but by drawing 11 12 we bring it into a relationship with 5 6, and so by stages through 9 10 and 7 8 to the original straight line 1 2, line 13 14, by being related to 3 4, 11 12, and also 5 6 still further harmonizes the group, and the remainder echo 5-6 and increase the dominant swing, that LMSAs have been introduced, covering crossing lines, and we have a basis for a composition, in diagram I lines have been drawn as before, at random, but two of them are straight and at right angles, the longer being across the center of the panel, the first thing to do is to trick the eye out of knowing that this line is in the center by drawing others parallel to it, leading the eye downwards to a line 9-10, which is now much more important than 1 to and in better proportion with the height of the panel. The vertical line 3-4 is rather stark and lonely, and so we introduce two more verticals at 11-12 and 13-14, which modify this, and with another two lines in sympathy with 5-6 and leading the eye back to the horizontal top of the panel, some sort of unity is set up. The introduction of some essays completing the scheme at M. There is a quality of sympathy set up by certain line relationships about which it is important to say something. Ladies who have the instinct for choosing a hat or doing their hair to suit their face instinctively know something of this, know that certain things in their face are emphasized by certain forms in their hats or hair, and the care that has to be taken to see that the things thus drawn attention to are their best and not their worst points. The principle is more generally understood in relation to color, everybody knows how the blueness of blue eyes is emphasized by a sympathetic blue dress or touch of blue on a hat, and see, but the same principle applies to lines, the qualities of line and beautiful eyes and eyebrows are emphasized by the long sympathetic curve of a picture hat, and the becoming effect of a necklace is partly due to the same cause, the lines being in sympathy with the eyes or the oval of the face, according to how low or high they hang. The influence of long lines is thus to pick out from among the lines of a face those with which they are in sympathy, and thus to accentuate them. To illustrate this, on page 178 transcribers note, plate XLII is reproduced, the portrait of the artist's daughter, by Sir Edward Jones. The two things that are brought out by the line arrangement in this portrait are the beauty of the eyes and the shape of the face. Instead of the picture have you had the mirror the widening circles of which swing round in sympathy with the eyes and concentrate the attention on them, that on the left looking at the picture being nearest the center, has the greatest attention concentrated upon it, the lines of the mirror being more in sympathy with this than the other eye, as it is nearer the center, if you care to take the trouble, cut a hole in a piece of opaque paper the size of the head and placing it over the illustration look at the face without the influence of these outside lines, and note how much more equally divided the attention is between the two eyes without the emphasis given to, the one by the mirror, this helps the unity of impression, which with both eyes realized to so intense a focus might have suffered, this mirror forms a sort of echo of the pupil of the eye with its reflection of the window in the left hand corner corresponding to the highlight, greatly helping the spell these eyes hold, illustration, plate XLII, 
Portrait of the Artist's Daughter Sir Edward B. Uarani Jones, Bart, an example of sympathetic rhythm. See diagram on opposite page. Photo Hollier The other form accentuated by the line arrangement is the oval of the face. There is the necklace the lines of which lead on to those on the right in the reflection. It is no mere accident that this chain is so in sympathy with the line of the face, it would hardly have remained where it is for long, and must have been put in this position by the artist with the intention conscious or instinctive of accentuating the face line. The line of the reflection on the left and the lines of the mirror are also sympathetic. Others in the folds of the dress, and those forming the mass of the hands and arms, echo still further this line of the face and bring the whole canvas into intense sympathetic unity of expression. The influence that different ways of doing the hair may have on a face is illustrated in the accompanying scribbles. The two profiles are exactly alike I took great trouble to make them so. It is quite remarkable the difference the two ways of doing the hair make to the look of the faces. The upward swing of the lines in a sympathize with the line of the nose and the sharper projections of the face generally see dotted lines, while the full downward curves of B sympathize with the fuller curves of the face and particularly emphasize the fullness under the chin so dreaded by beauty past its first youth see dotted lines. It is only a very sharply cut face that can stand this low knot at the back of the head, in which case it is one of the simplest and most beautiful ways of doing the hair. The hair dragged up high at the back sharpens the lines of the profile as the low knot blunts them. Illustration, Diagram XXI, illustrating the effect on the face of cutting the hair up at the back. How the upward flow of lines accentuates the SHARP and of the features. Illustration, Diagram XXII, illustrating the effect on the same face AS Diagram XXI, of cutting the hair low at the back. How the fuller lines thus give and accentuate the FUL of the features. The illustrations to this chapter have been drawn in diagrammatical form in order to try and show that the musical quality of lines and the emotions they are capable of calling up are not dependent upon truth to natural forms but are inherent in abstract arrangements themselves. That is to say, whenever you get certain arrangements of lines, no matter what the objects in nature may be that yield them, you will always get the particular emotional stimulus belonging to such arrangements. For instance, Whenever you get long and interrupted horizontal lines running through a picture not opposed by any violent contrast, you will always get an impression of intense quiet and repose, no matter whether the natural objects yielding these lines are a wide stretch of country with long horizontal clouds in the sky, a pool with a gentle breeze making horizontal bars on its surface, or a pile of wood in a timber yard, and whenever you get long vertical lines in a composition, no matter whether it be a cathedral interior, a pine forest, or a row of scaffold poles, you will always have the particular feeling associated with rows of vertical lines in the abstract, and further, whenever you get the swinging lines of the balut, an impression of energy will be conveyed, no matter whether it be a breaking wave, rolling clouds, whirling dust, or only a mass of tangled hoop iron in a wheelwright's yard, as was said above, these effects may be greatly increased, modified, or even destroyed by associations connected with the things represented, If in painting the timber yard the artist is thinking more about making it look like a stack of real wood with its commercial associations and less about using the artistic material its appearance presents for the making of a picture, he may miss the harmonic impression the long lines of the stacks of wood present. If real wood is the first thing you are led to think of in looking at his work, he will obviously have missed the expression of any artistic feeling the subject was capable of producing, and the same may be said of the scaffold poles or the hoop iron in the wheelwright's yard. 
The structure of abstract lines at the basis of a picture will be more or less overlaid with the truths of nature, and all the rich variety of natural forms, according to the requirements of the subject. Thus, in large decorative work, where the painting has to take its place as part of an architectural scheme, the severity of the skeleton will be necessary to unite the work to the architectural forms around it, of which it has to form a part, and very little indulgence in the realization of natural truth should be permitted to obscure it. But in the painting of a small cabinet picture that exists for close inspection, the supporting power of this line basis is not nearly so essential, and a full indulgence in all the rich variety of natural detail is permissible. And this is how it happens that painters who have gloried in rich details have always painted small pictures, and painters who have preferred larger truths pictures of bigger dimensions. It sounds rather paradoxical to say the smaller the picture the more detail it should contain, and the larger the less, but it is nevertheless true, for although a large picture has not of necessity got to be part of an architectural scheme, it has to be looked at from a distance at which small detail could not be seen and where such detail would greatly weaken its expressive power, and further, the small picture easily comes within the field of vision, and the whole impression can be readily grasped without the main lines being, as it were, underlined, but in a big picture one of the greatest difficulties is to get it to read simply, to strike the eye as one impression, its size making it difficult for it to be got comfortably within the field of vision, every artifice has to be used to give it breadth of treatment, as it is called, and nothing interferes with this like detail. XII variety of mass the masses that go to make up a picture had variety in their shape, their tone values, their edges, in texture or quality, and in gradation. Quite a formidable list, but each of these particulars has some rhythmic quality of its own about which it will be necessary to say a word, as to variety of shape. Many things that were said about lines apply equally to the spaces enclosed by them. It is impossible to write of the rhythmic possibilities that the infinite variety of shapes possessed by natural objects contain, except to point out how necessary the study of nature is for this. Variety of shape is one of the most difficult things to invent, and one of the commonest things in nature. However imaginative your conception, and no matter how far you may carry your design, working from imagination, there will come a time when studies from nature will be necessary if your work is to have the variety that will give life and interest. Try and draw from imagination a row of elm trees of about the same height and distance apart, and get the variety of nature into them, and you will see how difficult it is to invent. On examining your work you will probably discover two or three pet forms repeated, or there may be only one, or try and draw some cumulus clouds from imagination, several groups of them across the sky and you will find how often again you have repeated unconsciously the same forms, how tired one gets of the pet cloud or tree of a painter who does not often consult nature in his pictures. Nature is the great storehouse of variety, even a piece of coal will suggest more interesting rock forms than you can invent, and it is fascinating to watch the infinite variety of graceful forms assumed by the curling smoke from a cigarette, full of suggestions for beautiful line arrangements. If this variety of form in your work is allowed to become excessive it will overpower the unity of your conception. It is in the larger unity of your composition that the imaginative faculty will be wanted, and variety in your forms should always be subordinated to this idea. Nature does not so readily suggest a scheme of unity, for the simple reason that the first condition of your picture, the four bounding lines, does not exist in nature. You may get infinite suggestions for arrangements and should always be on the lookout for them. 
but your imagination will have to relate them to the rigorous conditions of your forebounding lines, and nature does not help you much here, but when variety in the forms is wanted, she is preeminent, and it is never advisable to waste inventive power where it is so unnecessary, but although nature does not readily suggest a design fitting the conditions of a panel her tendency is always towards unity of arrangement, if you take a bunch of flowers or leaves and haphazard stuff them into a vase of water, you will probably get a very chaotic arrangement, but if you leave it for some time and let nature have a chance you will find that the leaves and flowers had arranged themselves much more harmoniously, and if you cut down one of a group of trees, what a harsh discordant gap is usually left, but in time nature will, by throwing about here and filling up a gap there, as far as possible rectify matters and bring all into a unity again. I am prepared to be told this has nothing to do with beauty but is only the result of nature's attempts to seek for light and air, but whatever be the physical cause, the fact is the same, that nature's laws tend to pictorial unity of arrangement, it will be as well to try and explain what is meant by tone values, all the masses or tones for the terms are often used interchangeably that go to the making of a visual impression can be considered in relation to an imagined scale from white, to represent the lightest, to black to represent the darkest tones. The scale of values does not refer to a light and shade only, but light and shade, color, and the whole visual impression are considered as one mosaic of masses of different degrees of darkness or lightness. A dark object in strong light may be lighter than a white object in shadow, or the reverse, it will depend on the amount of reflected light. Color only matters in so far as it affects the position of the mass in this imagined scale of black and white. The correct observation of these tone values is a most important matter, and one of no little difficulty. The word tone is used in two senses, in the first place when referring to the individual masses as to their relations in the scale of tone values, and secondly when referring to the musical relationship of these values to a oneness of tone idea governing the whole impression. In very much the same way you might refer to a single note in music as a tone, and also to the tone of the whole orchestra. The word values always refers to the relationship of the individual masses or tones in our imagined scale from black to white. We say a picture is out of value or out of tone when some of the values are darker or lighter than our sense of harmony feels they should be. In the same way as we should say an instrument in an orchestra was out of tone or tune when it was higher or lower than our sense of harmony allowed. Tone is so intimately associated with the color of a picture that it is a little difficult to treat of it apart and it is often used in a sense to include color in speaking of the general tone. We say it has a warm tone or a cool tone. There is a particular rhythmic beauty about a well-ordered arrangement of tone values that is a very important part of pictorial design. This music of tone has been present in art in a rudimentary way since the earliest time, but has recently received a much greater amount of attention, and much new light on the subject has been given by the Impressionist movement and the study of the art of China and Japan which is nearly always very beautiful in this respect. This quality of tone music is most dominant when the masses are large and simple, when the contemplation of them is not disturbed by much variety, and they have little variation of texture and gradation. A slight mist will often improve the tone of the landscape for this reason. It simplifies the tones, masses them together, obliterating many smaller varieties. I have even heard of the tone of a picture being improved by such a mist scrambled or glazed over it. The powder on a lady's face, when not overdone, is an improvement for the same reason. It simplifies the tones by destroying the distressing shining lights that were cutting up the masses, and it also destroys a large amount of half-tone, 
broadening the lights almost up to the commencement of the shadows. Tone relationships are most sympathetic when the middle values of your scale only are used, that is to say, when the lights are low in tone and the darks high. They are most dramatic and intense when the contrasts are great and the jumps from dark to a light sudden. The sympathetic charm of half-light effects is due largely to the tones being of this middle range only, whereas the striking dramatic effect of a storm clearing, in which you may get a landscape brilliantly lit by the sudden appearance of the Sunday scene against the dark clouds of the retreating storm, owes much of its dramatic quality to contrast. The strong contrasts of tone values coupled with the strong color contrast between the warm sunlit land and the cold angry blue of the storm, gives such a scene much dramatic effect and power. The subject of values will be further treated in dealing with unity of tone. Variety in quality and nature is almost too subtle to write about with any prospect of being understood. The play of different qualities and textures in the masses that go to form a picture must be appreciated at first hand, and little can be written about it. Oil paint is capable of almost unlimited variety in this way, but it is better to leave the study of such qualities until you have mastered the medium in its more simple aspects. The particular tone music of which we were speaking is not helped by any great use of this variety. A oneness of quality throughout the work is best sweet to exhibit it. Masters of tone, like Whistler, preserve this oneness of quality very carefully in their work, relying chiefly on the grain of the rough canvas to give the necessary variety and prevent a deadness in the quality of the tones. But when more force and brilliancy are wanted, some use of your paint in a crumbling, broken manner is necessary as it catches more light, thus increasing the force of the impression. Claude Monet and his followers in their search for brilliancy use this quality throughout many of their paintings, with new and striking results, but it is at the sacrifice of many beautiful qualities of form, as this roughness of surface does not lend itself readily to any finesse of modeling, in the case of Claude Monet's work. However, this does not matter, as form with all its subtleties is not a thing he made any attempt at exploiting. Nature is sufficiently vast for beautiful work to be done in separate departments of vision, although one cannot place such work on the same plane with successful pictures of wider scope, and the particular visual beauty of sparkling light and atmosphere, of which he was one of the first to make a separate study, could hardly exist in a work that aimed also at the significance of beautiful form, the appeal of form, as was explained in an earlier chapter, not being entirely due to a visual but to a mental perception into which the sense of touch enters by association. The scintillation and glitter of light destroys this touch idea, which is better preserved in quieter lightings. There is another point in connection with the use of thick paint, that I don't think is sufficiently well known, and that island its greater readiness to be discolored by the oil in its composition coming to the surface. Fifteen years ago I did what it would be advisable for every student to do as soon as possible, namely, make a chart of the colors he is likely to use. Get a good white canvas, and set upon it in columns the different colors, very much as you would do on your palette, writing the names in ink beside them. Then take a palette knife, an ivory one by preference, and drag it from the individual masses of paint so as to get a gradation of different thicknesses, from the thinnest possible layer where your knife ends to the thick mass where it was squeezed out of the tube. It is also advisable to have previously ruled some pencil lines with a hard point down the canvas in such a manner that the strips of paint will cross the lines. This chart will be of the greatest value to you in noting the effect of time on paint. To make it more complete, the colors of several makers should be put down, and at any rate the whites of several different makes should be on it. 
as white enters so largely into your painting it is highly necessary to use one that does not change. The two things that I have noticed are that the thin ends of the strips of white have invariably kept whiter than the thick end, and that all the paints have become a little more transparent with time. The pencil lines here come in full, as they can be seen through the thinner portion, and show to what extent this transparency has occurred. But the point I wish to emphasize is that at the thick end the larger body of oil in the paint, which always comes to the surface as it dries, has darkened and yellowed the surface greatly, while the small amount of oil at the thin end has not darkened it to any extent. Claude Monet evidently knew this, and got over the difficulty by painting on an absorbent canvas, which sucks the surplus oil out from below and thus prevents its coming to the surface and discoloring the work in time. When this thick manner of painting is adopted, an absorbent canvas should always be used, it also has the advantage of giving a dull dry surface of more brilliancy than a shiny one, although not so much as with painting, varieties of texture enter into drawings done with any of the mediums that lend themselves to mass drawing, charcoal, con crayon, lithographic chalk, and even red chalk and lead pencil are capable of giving a variety of textures, governed largely by the surface of the paper used, but this is more the province of painting than of drawing proper and charcoal, which is more painting than drawing, is the only medium in which it can be used with much effect. There is a very beautiful rhythmic quality in the play from softness to sharpness on the edges of masses, a monotonous sharpness of edges hard, stern, and insympathetic. This is a full quality at times, particularly in decorative work, where the more intimate sympathetic qualities are not so much wanted and where the harder forms go better with the architectural surroundings of which your painted decoration should form a part. On the other hand, a monotonous softness of edge is very weak and feeble looking, and too entirely lacking in power to be desirable. If you find any successful work done with this quality of edge and relieved by any sharpnesses, it will depend on color, and not form, for any qualities it may possess. Some amount of softness makes for charm, and is extremely popular, I do like that because it's so nice and soft, is a regular show day remark in the studio, and is always meant as a great compliment, but is seldom taken as such by the suffering painter, but a balance of these two qualities playing about your contours produces the most delightful results, and the artist is always on the lookout for such variations, he seldom lets a sharpness of edge run far without losing it occasionally, it may be necessary for the hang of the composition that some leading edges should be much insisted on. But even here a monotonous sharpness is to data thing, and although a firmness of run will be allowed to be felt, subtle variations will be introduced to prevent dadness. The Venetians from Giorgione's time were great masters of this music of edges. The structure of lines surrounding the masses on which their compositions are built were fused in the most mysterious and delightful way. But although melting into the surrounding mass, they are always firm and never soft and feeble. Study the edge in such a good example of the Venetian manner as the Bacchus and Ariadne at the National Gallery, and note where they are hard and where lost. There is one rather remarkable fact to be observed in this picture and many Venetian works, and this is that the most accented edges are reserved for an essential parts, like the piece of white drapery on the lower arm of the girl with the symbols, and the little white flower on the boy's head in front. The edges on the flesh are everywhere fused and soft, the draperies being much sharper. You may notice the same thing in many pictures of the later Venetian schools. The greatest accents on the edges are rarely in the head, except it may be occasionally in the eyes, but they love to get some strongly accented feature, such as a crisply painted shirt coming against the soft modeling of the neck. 
to balance the fused edges in the flesh. In the head of Philippide in our National Gallery the only place where Velasquez has allowed himself anything like a sharp edge is in the highlights on the chain hanging round the neck. The softer edges of the principal features in these compositions lend a largeness and mystery to these parts, and to restore the balance, sharpnesses are introduced in non-essential accessories. In the figure with the white tunic from Velasquez's Surrender of Breda, here reproduced, Note the wonderful variety on the edges of the white masses of the coat and the horse's nose, and also that the sharpest accents are reserved for such non-essentials as the bows on the tunic and the loose hair on the horse's forehead. Velasquez's edges are wonderful, and cannot be too carefully studied. He worked largely in flat tones or planes, but this richness and variety of his edges keeps his work from looking flat and dull, like that of some of his followers. I am sorry to say this variety does not come out so well in the reproduction on page 194 transcriber's note, plate XLRD as I could have wished, the half-tone process having a tendency to sharpen edges rather monotonously. This quality is everywhere to be found in nature. If you regard any scene pictorially, looking at it as a whole and not letting your eye focus on individual objects wandering from one to another while being but dimly conscious of the whole, but regarding it as a beautiful ensemble, you will find that the boundaries of the masses are not hard continuous edges but play continually along their course, here melting imperceptibly into the surrounding mass, and they're accentuated more sharply, even along continuous line, like the horizon at sea, has some amount of this play, which you should always be on the lookout for, but when the parts only of nature are regarded and each is separately focused, hard edges will be found to exist almost everywhere unless there is a positive mist enveloping the objects, and this is the usual way of looking at things, but a picture that is a catalog of many little parts separately focused will not hang together as one visual impression. Illustration, play XLRD, part of the surrender of the RDA, by the lazy QUASI note the varied quantity of the edging white mass of tunic, the reproduction does not unfortunately show this as well as the original. Photo Anderson in naturalistic work the necessity for painting to a one focal impression is as great as the necessity of painting in true perspective. What perspective has done for drawing, the impressionist system of painting to a one all embracing focus has done for tone. Before perspective was introduced, each individual object in a picture was drawn with a separate center of vision fixed on each object in turn. What perspective did was to insist that all objects in a picture should be drawn in relation to a one fixed center of vision. And whereas formerly each object was painted to a hard focus, whether it was in the foreground or the distance, Impressionism teaches that you cannot have the focus in a picture at the same time on the foreground and the distance. Of course there are many manners of painting with more primitive conventions in which the consideration of focus does not enter, but in all painting that aims at reproducing the impressions directly produced in us by natural appearances, this question of focus and its influence on the quality of your edges is of great importance. Something should be said about the serrated edges of masses, like those of trees seen against the sky. These are very difficult to treat, and almost every landscape painter has a different formula. The hard, fussy, cut-out, photographic appearance of trees misses all their beauty and sublimity. There are three principal types of treatment that may serve as examples. In the first place there are the trees of the early Italian painters three examples of which are illustrated on page 197 transcribers note, diagram XXII, a thin tree is always selected, and a rhythmic pattern of leaves against the sky painted, 
This treatment of a dark pattern on a light ground is very full as a contrast to the softer tones of flesh. But the treatment is more often applied nowadays to a spray of foliage in the foreground, the pattern of which gives a very rich effect. The poplar trees in Millar's Vale of Rest are painted in much the same manner as that employed by the Italians, and are exceptional among modern tree paintings, the trees being treated as a pattern of leaves against the sky. Millar's has also got a raised quality of paint in his darks very similar to that of Bellini and many early painters. Giorgione added another tree to a landscape art, the rich, full, solidly massed forms that occur in his Concert Champetre of the Louvre. Reproduced on page 151 transcriber's note, plate XXXII. In this picture you may see both types of treatment. There are the patterns of leaves variety on the left and the solidly massed treatment on the right. Illustration, diagram XXII. Examples of early Italian treatment of trees A. From pictures in Oratorio di S. Ansano. Il Trionfo del Amor. Attributed to Botticelli. B. From, Lanonzioni. By Botticelli. Uffizi. Florence, C. From, La Vergine, by Giovanni Bellini in the Academia, Venice. Coro in his later work developed a treatment that has been largely followed since. Looking at trees with a very wide focus, he ignored individual leaves, and resolved them into masses of tone, here lost and here found more sharply against the sky. The subordinate masses of foliage within these main boundaries are treated in the same way, resolved into masses of infinitely varying edges. This place, 